Turn with me in your Bible, Isaiah chapter 10. We want to teach on the anointing tonight. I haven't ever uh, maybe significantly taught on it as a topic, but let's teach on it briefly tonight. And by briefly, I mean an hour and a half. It's a joke, it's a joke, it's a joke. Isaiah chapter 10 is where we'll start, but let me uh, speak to the, the doctrine of it briefly for time's sake without turning to everything. Uh, the very first place the anointing is mentioned is with concerning the priesthood, uh, concerning the Levites being anointed and uh, Moses anointing Aaron and his sons for the office of priesthood. So the term anointing comes from the Hebrew Meshach, uh, which we get our word Messiah from. So a mashak, to mashak, something is to anoint it. That means to rub it with oil. Anything that can be rubbed as an oil is called an unction. Uh, if you're part of the Catholic Church or what are called the high churches, they call them the churches that are, uh, that are defined by smells and bells, incense and chimes. It's kind of a funny thing. That's considered the high church, the Hochkirche in German, the high church. Uh, they have what are called the holy unction. In the Greek, it's also called a chrism, same in English, a chrisma, a chrism, where we also derive the word Christos or Christ from. So the word Messiah and the word Christ are the same word, one Hebrew, one Greek. Both mean someone who's been rubbed with oil. So Jesus Christ, Christ is not his surname. It's not his last name. It's his title. And so it means he that was rubbed with the oil, the anointing oil. So under the Old Testament, it was the priests that were first rubbed with oil, the Meshach, and that was to appoint them, ordain them, and set them apart for the priesthood. If you were not anointed for the priesthood, you would die. And so that anointing, in terms of the oil, set you apart. It represented the presence and the power of God, and it came upon Aaron's sons to do the work of the priesthood. Anybody else that went in the priest to play priest would die, like King Asa, good king, excuse me, King Uzziah, good king, decided to enter into the temple to play priest. He was not anointed to be priest. He was anointed to be king, and so leprosy broke out on his forehead, and he stubbornly died of his rebellion. So this is kind of the foundation for the doctrine of the anointing. It was always oil, and it was oil that was representative of the Holy Spirit. When the kings began to be appointed, Saul being the first king, followed by David and then Solomon, they began to be known as the Lord's anointed. And so the term Meshach became Mashiach. So someone who was Meshached became known as the Mashiach someone who is anointed, and so it became a synonym for the Lord's anointed, always in reference to the king. And then in the time of Daniel, it's the first time Mashiach is used specifically as a personal pronoun for the Messiah, and it's translated as such in our book of Daniel, the Messiah, the Messiah, the prince. And it's the first time we began to see Jesus the Christ as Messiah, the prince. So then you bring it over into English, or excuse me, Greek, and the Greek translates it as Christo, to be anointed. And so typically, really, the word Christ is just a, an adjective. It's the anointed one. It's not his name. And I'm not against this if we pray in the name of Christ, but it does show a certain ignorance of doctrine. I won't debate you for it. I pray in Christ's name sometimes. I, I invoke the name of Christ, but it's the name of Jesus. That's his birth name. Christ becomes the position and title he fulfilled. We know who thou art, Jesus, the Holy One of Israel. Even the demons didn't bother with the Christ term because it was a very common term throughout all of Judeo-Judean 
uh, Hebrew culture. And so when Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan, that is when he became mashat. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has mashat me, anointed me to preach the gospel. At that point, he becomes Jesus the Christ, and he becomes the anointed one as prophet in the earthly ministry, priest to make intercession for us, and the king of kings. So he becomes anointed to stand in all three offices. He lives to be all three. He will always be the king of kings. He will always be the high priest of our confession. He will always be the prophet. And so this is the foundation for the anointing. Uh, it is, as Pastor Jean-Marie uh, said this morning, it's the power of God that comes upon us to do something we can't possibly do ourselves. And that's why we need it. A lot of the modern church is afraid of the anointing of God because you can't control it. The best you and I could do is quench it. And we also don't like the anointing of God because it'll change who we are. And so now we get into narcissism and cult of personalities. Because when the anointing of God, the power of God comes upon you, you will be changed into a different person. And most folks are so self-consumed, they don't want to be different. They want to be who they have imagined themselves to be. They want to be who their Converse high tops declare them to be or their social media page declare them to be. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you and I will be changed into another man. And to maintain that anointing, you're going to have to stay changing because you can't live the same way today and increase in the anointing tomorrow. You're going to have to come closer to Christ the more you come to the Lord Jesus, the more he's going to burn things off of you, and you're going to be a different person. I have met folks who, for some reason or another, got stuck in time, and they're operating in a 30-year-old anointing. It's stale. They've not maintained currency uh, with the Holy Spirit. They've not been established in current truth. They are still hung up in the past revival, and it's weird, and it's stinky, and it's funky. If they had stayed with the Holy Spirit every step of the way, they would no doubt be a totally different person. You can't fight to be who you want to be and maintain the anointing of God on your life. You have to say, Lord, make me who I need to be. And sometimes that anointing will destroy you because you need to be broken down. Sometimes it will break our ego. It will destroy me. It will break down my pride. It will say, repent. It will say, change us. It will say, never wear that kind of clothing again. Maybe never wear those kind of shoes again because you have too much pride when you wear that. Never wear your eyes like that again. Never, never wear it. It'll destroy you who you've made yourself to be, which is usually a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. And we should be fighting to get more of God on us, not more of us. Remember, John the Baptist taught us we must decrease that he might increase. One of the things you see with the doctrine of the anointing over the course of the New Testament is it goes from being tied to an anointing oil, which it was every step of the way through the Old Testament. Jesus Christ kind of wads that up and throws it out because at his ordination service, there's no oil involved. He's water baptized and he comes out full of the spirit. And the gospel of John says, and he had the spirit without measure. No oil ever involved. The only time we ever see oil applied to him is by three different women anointing him at different stages in his life. Two, about six days apart, right before his crucifixion. We see no ordination service involving anointing oil. Not that we're against it. We have our anointing oil ready to go tonight because he still commanded in the gospel of Mark to lay hands on the sick, anoint them with oil. We still see it in the gospel of or the epistle of James. We still anoint with oil. But what we also see in the New Testament is that we now have an anointing of the Holy One. And we need not that any man teach us for that anointing that we have, that unction 
teaches us all things. That doesn't mean we don't need teachers. We do. But that anointing upon us in the new birth and in living for Jesus Christ, it builds things upon us. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be able to know the whole Bible, though you should learn it. But you can know things by the Holy Spirit. When somebody speaks, you can say, that's not right, and that's not God. You know by the anointing of God. Furthermore, we, we teach it's a good thing to know the whole Bible, and we should study it. But what about our brothers and sisters who didn't have a Bible, still don't have a Bible? The Bible as we have it really wasn't commonly available to the last 200 years of human history. Really the last 150 years. Only within the last 20 years could everybody have every translation available on the palm of their hand in the last five years. And so honestly, the closer we get to eternity, the more we have available to us, the more responsible we will be. So let me say it this way. As we were praying, God has given us so many tools for our success. The anointing is one of them. And every tool he's given us has an anointing upon it. So we have the new birth that involved the spirit of God baptizing us into the body of Christ. That's an anointing. And then we get into a local church and a local church is strengthened by the anointing on the local church. And every church has a different anointing upon it. And then you have disciplers and they're anointed to disciple you and hold Bible studies with you and chew you out. The anointing to rebuke someone is a wonderful anointing and you have to be mature enough to receive it. Don't demand to be treated like a man when you can't be spoken to like one. If you can't be spoken to like a man, you're not a man, you're a child. So there has to be an anointing to receive a rebuke too. And so we have the Holy Spirit, of course, in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That's an anointing in and of itself. We have the Holy Scriptures. That's anointed. The Word of God is always anointed. Just read it out loud. The anointing of God will fall upon your room. You could read uh, the genealogies. The presence of God will say, uh-huh, I knew that guy. Uh-huh, I knew that guy. Uh-huh, you didn't pronounce that one right. Or the next one. Nope, I knew those guys. Uh-huh. You can read the genealogies as boring and as hard on the mouth as they are, and God will confirm it because it's his word. You've been given a local pastor and elders. They have an anointing. You've been given worship teams. They have an anointing. Every tool we've been given for success in the kingdom has an anointing on it. And when we submit to those tools, correction, discipleship, Bible study, worship, there's an anointing for tithes and offerings. It, all, of it, all of it ministers an anointing on our life, which then begs the question, how could we possibly fail? And yet... People do. Because there's nothing more powerful in the universe than the human will. Even Samson, as mightily anointed as he was, he didn't want God more than he wanted lust. He could say he wanted God, but his actions proved otherwise. So I don't want to go down that rabbit trail. Isaiah chapter 10. Let's look at a foundational verse. What I want to talk about tonight, we'll just say the anointing and its purposes. And we're going to briefly look at several different types of anointings. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off by shoulder and his yoke from off by neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. And the Hebrew word there, shemen, shemen, which is oil, anointing oil. It, you can write it down if you want. You don't have to. The Greek equivalent is chrism. Shimon, it's just oil. But I want you to see that the, one of the primary roles, if you're going to make a list tonight, one of the primary purposes of the anointing is to destroy yokes of bondage. One of the reasons we come to church is so that we can have the anointing of God applied to our life 
to keep us free. We come to church to have another round of the anointing applied to us so we can stay free. Uh, with this anointing oil here, this is a spiced oil, and I actually think they, they try to say this is the actual, the, uh, the holy anointing oil, but it's not. This has calamus, cassia, cassia, absolute, frankincense, myrrh, Peru balsam, that is not from the holy land, uh, aponex, sandalwood, spikenard, blended, and pure olive wood with jojoba oils. That's a fun one to say, jojoba. We used to have shampoo of that when I was a kid. With less than 10%. 95% pure grain alcohol, less than 10%, 95% pure grain alcohol for dissolution of components, not fully dissolved in oils. All right. So mostly what you're going to taste, if I've ever anointed you with this, is the, uh, the cinnamon, the cassia. And because the, uh, the holy anointing oil was a spiced oil, um, if you've ever had me anoint you with oil, you can typically taste it in your mouth 20, 30 minutes later. I usually wake up the next morning, I can still taste it. Though I don't touch my forehead with it, all I ever do is touch my thumb, and I still taste it a day later. And that's the residue of the phenolics and the terpenes, the, the all organic chemistry in this thing. But what's so fascinating about this as a typology is that it's never as strong as when it's first mixed and first applied. And the second I touch you with it, this anointing oil, that's the strongest you're going to taste cassia, cinnamon. And it'll begin to wane. And that by the time tomorrow morning, mid-morning, you can't even tell, naturally speaking, you had anything done to you with any kind of unction or chrism. And that's the same way the anointing of God is. We lay hands on you tonight. The power of God will come upon you, and it will never be so strong as in that moment. And from that moment, it will begin to fade. And that's why we keep coming back into the presence of God to be refreshed and re-anointed. We use the example of Moses' face. He would go into the temple excuse me, the tabernacle, the presence of God would charge his being so much his face would glow. And he'd have to put a bag over his head because it would scare people. And then when he'd go back into the presence of God, he'd take the bag off and in a sense recharge his face. But we know it didn't stay glowing because he didn't die with a glowing face. But that time in his, God's presence would recharge him with the power of God. And it's all a typology for us to spend time in God's presence again and again and again to stay built up. We'd call it filling your bucket. But the second you leave the well, your bucket leaks. It's just part of the bucket. But there are people and relationships and situations in your life that want to eat holes in your bucket and pry those planks apart further in your bucket so that by the time Wednesday comes along, your bucket isn't just dry, it's bone dry. It isn't just no water and dripping and wet wood, it's just bone dry. You have to find the people, the, the habits, the hobbies, the situations in your life that drain the anointing faster than you can keep it filled in between prayer and in between church times. So we keep the anointing reapplied to our life to keep yokes broken some Christians, with all the tools available to them, insist on building new yokes and testing them. Don't run with the yoke engineer. Don't run with the man who makes yokes and makes them specifically for you. I've even learned as a minister, just because I stand in front of someone in a prayer line and they manifest a demon, it doesn't mean I'm going to cast it out. I've learned sometimes you leave it alone. They want the demon, and I'm not helping them by setting them free. 
which feels counterintuitive until you've done it enough times and they come back the next service and they have three demons now and they're worse off. Should have left you with the one. Now you've got three. Now you're more depressed. People have demons because they want them. People have yokes, generally speaking, because they want them. And you can't push a dead man up a ladder. I've also learned you can't talk people into joy. If they don't want it, you can give them the world, set them free, and they'll find a reason to be miserable. Well, I know you set me free and gave me a million dollars, and, and I know I'm healed, but now there's a cloud in the sky. <sighs> Some people, you can't help. If, if there's one of the hardest lessons I've learned as a pastor is some people you can't help and you don't waste time on. Your job is to pursue after Jesus Christ, crying out to him to get his attention. And if you'll get his attention, he'll direct the minister to turn to you because we're led by the spirit of God and the anointing. We have been taught in our culture too much to be led by emotions and empathy. And empathy can easily be manipulated. And so we have to be led by the Holy Spirit. Look at Isaiah 61. The first point I wanted to give you on the anointing is it destroys the yoke. We stay anointed to stay yoke free. You can't get hooked on drugs staying anointed. Amen. You can't get depressed staying anointed. <laughs> Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me. Now look, there's an anointing, and this is something Pastor Jean-Marie and I were talking about, the anointing and Miss Charlotte at lunch. The anointing doesn't come to be blessed only. The anointing comes to do something. The second thing you see just in our list tonight, the anointing comes to help us preach. This is a prophecy for Jesus Christ. This is a prophecy for you and I. We are anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach. Amen. Now one of the things I've learned to do as a pastor helping my own marriage is, and my wife will do it to me. Sometimes she does it to help get me out of my funk. We've learned to manifest the anointing that's on our life as ministers to help our own family. You can do the same thing. You don't have to be a minister. It's easy for us to get in the dumps, the mully grubs, to get depressed and feeling sorry for ourselves. And we act like we don't know what to do. But that is a lie. We know exactly what to do because if someone came to us with the same situation, we'd be anointed of God and have the answer and deliver them with the mighty hand and stretch forth and pretend to be Charlton Heston as Moses. So we're hypocrites because we really know what to do. We just don't think it applies to us. So we're anointed to preach. And I might add safely, biblically, to ourselves, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So there's been a handful of times when I've been in a funk fighting something heavy. My wife will say, is this what you would tell the church family to do? Are you doing what you would tell the sheep to do? Or are you going to get up and do the word? Fair enough. And there's been other times when she's come to me with something and I would say, I want you to know I'm about to activate the pastoral anointing. I just want you to be prepared because I'm going to treat you like a sheep and not my wife because I got to troubleshoot this. And if you want help, get help. She'll say, okay. 
So I'll say, all right, I'll just pretend like you're sitting across the desk from me and let me activate the anointing upon my life to preach the gospel. Because so let me help wives. Sometimes you just want to complain. You don't really want help. Men are not geared to waste time unless it's sports. So men get beat up because we have to tell men, just listen sometimes, man, just listen. But now let's flip the switch. Women, don't talk if you don't want help. We ain't got time to play this game. And if it's our marriage under attack, what's your problem? And I'll fix it. And if you don't want it to be fixed, quit complaining. But men, don't be afraid to use the anointing on your life to preach the gospel. And wives, if you bring it to your husband, he's your chief discipler. He is anointed by God to troubleshoot your soul and make a disciple out of you. So don't try to lead him about with a little pig's ring in his nose because you're not anointed to lead your husband. I recently heard about a couple who it was bragged upon that she had really brought him so far. She had really helped him come up. She had made such big, such a, an impression upon his life. And it was such a wonderful testimony. She'd been such a, she'd been so good for him as a wife. And I thought that's wonderful, but that's not how the Bible works. She is not to lead him and bring him up. His job is to lead her. So part of the anointing on our lives, husbands, is to preach the gospel, help our children. Wives, you've got to be prepared to your husband activating the anointing on his life to preach the gospel to you. If you don't want it fixed, don't bring it to me. Don't come to my office and complain if you don't want fixing, because I don't have the time to waste on you. I love you. i got time to do something else, not just listen to your bellyache. And I think your husband would be appreciative if you'd have the same consideration of his time, because to be truthfully raw honest, I would rather watch a game than hear somebody complain and not be able to help them. Because all you've done is entertain me in a negative sense, and we've accomplished nothing. At least if I can watch a game without distraction, I can be entertained and feel good. So there's an anointing upon us, wives, mothers, to preach the gospel. That is, disciple your children. The anointing of God comes upon us to help us preach good tidings unto the meek. That is the teachable. The gospel isn't anointed for everybody. It is anointed for the teachable. That's why we don't waste time on the prideful. So there's a, there is a place, let's go back to marriage real quick, where husbands, you need to listen. Let her get everything out and then say, okay, are you done, sweetie? All right, now let's fix this. Well, I don't want you to fix it. Then don't bring it to me. And why don't you want it fixed? This is what's hurting our marriage. You just said as much. So why did you bring it to me except to baby just denigrate me, insult me, connive me? Well, if you didn't want it fixed, why did you bring it to me? Let me fix it. You are activating the power of God on my life because you're saying something in our covenant is broken. And if it's me, I'll, I'll, I'll plead guilty, but let me activate the anointing and fix it. It's what we do in church, too. It's what we do in my office when you come and want help. And you say, Pastor, I need help. And there comes the Samson anointing upon me. I can fix you if you can be meek. Because the anointing is only for the meek. It goes on to say, uh, the anointing is to bind up the brokenhearted. So here's the third thing the anointing of God will do. Not just preach the gospel. The anointing will heal the brokenhearted. That is 
would be, we call that Holy Ghost therapy. It literally means in the Hebrew, a heart that has been blasted to many pieces through trauma, hell, heartache, assault, betrayal. And yet the anointing will fix that if you'll submit to it. It doesn't come together overnight. Whole sections can be healed miraculously at once, but it is a process. And the more you'll submit to the process of discipleship and prayer and worship and Bible study and renewing your mind and casting down your vain imaginations and bringing into captivity every thought and telling your mind to be quiet and not so busy, the more your heart can be restored to normalcy. Some of us, not me, because my parents might be watching, but I don't need therapy from my childhood. Some of us need to be healed from our childhood. And that's okay. But don't prolong it. And he goes on to say, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. The fourth thing is the anointing comforts. The anointing comforts. I'm not against hugs, but you don't see Jesus hugging anybody. One of the things, especially in our country, Pastor John, I don't know if you've ever seen this in Africa. It's not in our church. It's always when the new people come in from weird charismatic ministries and there'll be altar calls and people will fall down crying and the power of God is ministering to them or they're crying, but you and I don't know why they're crying. It could be they're crying because they're under gross conviction and their heart is saying, oh God, have mercy. I'm a sinner. Oh God. Could be they're crying because they just had a vision of their loved one going to hell. And what do we as sappy, Oprah-trained Americans want to do? Oh, they're there. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And we are calling God's spirit a liar. It's okay. So now we have flesh rubbing flesh to console something that requires no consolation. And that, I've been in lots of meetings where see the man of God say, don't touch them. Don't you dare comfort them. You have no idea what God is doing. Get your hand off of them. You, if they're under gross conviction, you just told them their prostitution's okay. You just told them their daddy wasn't going to hell, contrary to the vision they just had when the man of God touched them and the anointing showed them what's going to happen to the family if they don't intercede. So we, we let God do his thing. And then if they need consolation, let the Holy Spirit fall upon them. There is a word, place for a word of encouragement. And I'm all for hugging. And the New Testament commands holy kissing on the cheek, which is the equivalent of a southern hug. I don't want us to start kissing each other on the cheek. Only Miss Josette really does that to me. And Pastor Richard Summerlin, which is odd enough because he's from Florida and he's a white guy. He always gives me a big kiss right there. All right, man. But the anointing is the comforter. The other thing I've seen in our church, not in a while, and I would warn you not to do it, is if I rebuke a sin, and then some of you, usually it's a woman, want to grab that person who got rebuked in a service and take them in the foyer and say, Pastor didn't mean that. I've seen that happen in our church. You know, I don't agree with pastors teaching on that, so you just dismiss that. I'm sorry, Jezebel. You don't have authorization to undo my teaching. So don't ever let anybody sucker you into that. In fact, if anybody wants to tell you that, just bring them to me or the elders so we can clear the air really quick and maybe prune a limb. 
Let's go to Luke chapter 5. So we had four reasons for an anointing right there. Uh, one of the things I want us to see tonight is that the anointing accomplishes multiple things. It is the power of God, and it usually comes with one agenda or purpose at a time. If you'll notice in our prayer lines, prayer lines usually have one call. Anybody fighting depression? I want to lay hands on you right now. Why? Because the anointing is to deliver that. Or if you're fighting symptoms in your body, I need you up here right now. Why? Because the minister can tell that the anointing for healing is present. Or if you feel called to the ministry, I want to lay hands on you right now. Why? Because the anointing to minister to ministers is present. There's always a different flavor to the anointing. And if you're not um, familiar with the anointing, all you can do is tell the presence of God is here. You can tell God is here. You can tell there's something, there's something strong. What is that? But the more time you spend in the presence of God, the more you can distinguish between the anointings. But typically in an altar call, there's just one thing being dealt with at a time. And the Holy Spirit will change it up. And these are sovereign moves of God. Whenever we have an altar call, it's usually by the word of knowledge. And the Lord says, I want you to pray for these people or people fighting this. When he says that to me by the word of knowledge, I have to be able to count on him to put that anointing on me to minister that. I can bank on it. I can demand it of God tastefully and tactfully. Lord, you said, now I need you to anoint me with that to help these, your people. I didn't control any of that except to yield as a vessel. That is a sovereign move of God. I don't control it. The best I can do is quench it. What I ought to do is yield to it and let him do what he wants to do. But I've also learned that when you yield to that, and you, let's say you lay hands on people who are fighting depression first, then it usually changes gears and it opens up the opportunity for the next thing God wants to do to happen. If you quench the first thing, you backlog all of it. And so what we have to make sure we do is that we get in a habit of yielding to the Holy Spirit in the slightest, littlest things so that we can be prepared for something bigger. I used to teach it like this. It's worth saying in the American context, the anointing is like cheeseburgers. All right, which sounds like, okay, really, Pastor? We're going to do this. Yeah, because we all know what a cheeseburger is. But does a crystal cheeseburger taste like a McDonald's cheeseburger? Does it taste like a Whopper? Does it taste like a $9 restaurant cheeseburger? Does it taste like your backyard flame-boiled on the grill cheeseburger? For real burger connoisseurs, Frank, can you taste the difference between charcoal and propane? You can taste the difference. And you and I better believe we can taste the difference between Velveeta cheese and sharp cheddar. <laughs> but they're all cheeseburgers. But almost every one of you through American experience, we could do a blind taste test, cut up every cheeseburger available at the fast food stores to the same size bite. Most of you by smell would be able to tell me that's a McDonald's cheeseburger. Same with the anointing of God. Just by spending time in the presence of God, you, thought, Ooh. you don't even say, that's the anointing. You say, I need to lay hands on the sick. You know it because it's a feeling, it's a seeing, it's a knowing. You know exactly what God wants to do. And again, if you're new to the things of God and the supernatural of God, all you can tell is God's presence is here and I'm shaking. Well, you have to figure out what that is. So Luke, what do we say? Luke chapter 5. Look at verse 16, Luke 5, 16, Jesus withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed, and it came to pass 
on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And yet it doesn't record Pharisees and doctors of the law being healed. So this teaches us something about the anointing. Just because it's present doesn't mean it gets to do what it wants to do. And we would call that grieving God or quenching God or quenching the Spirit. What does happen is a man with palsy gets healed. So none of the Pharisees or the doctors who have ailments get healed, but this other guy does. Here is an example of the power of God present, not to cast out devils, but to heal the sick. The power of God present, not to prophesy, not to disciple, but to specifically do one thing, and that is heal. And that is why we cannot say healing's been done away with because it's as much as the Holy Spirit's assignment as prophecy is, as teaching is, as comforting is, as deliverance is. If it's in Isaiah 61, it's still for today. So here we see an example of anointing to heal. Uh, if you want to turn to the famous passage, Acts 10.38, we'll look at something here. And then I want to get back to uh, Samuel real quick and see something there. Acts 10.38 how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Notice it does not say Jesus Christ. It says Jesus of Nazareth because that was the name he was known by. Like Nick of West Virginia and Holly of Sparta and Tracy of Monterey and Ben of Cookville. This was Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because Yeshua or Joshua was a very common name. Joshua which is how we would pronounce Yeshua. Joshua was a very common name. So how do we distinguish this Joshua from all the other Joshua rabbis roaming the hills of Israel? This is the Joshua, the Yeshua, the Jesus in the Greek, Jesus of Nazareth. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. So here we see the anointing is the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing. So the anointing comes to do. If all we talk about is how anointed I am, how anointed I am, how anointed I am, and you don't ever do anything, what's the point of the anointing? He went about doing good. You and I are anointed of God, not just to prophesy, though that looks real mystical. We're anointed to do good. So be anointed to do good on your job. You ought to be the hardest worker on your job. A Christian, specifically a spirit-filled one, should never be the one up for firing. Your boss should fight to keep you. Be anointed to do good in your classroom. Be anointed to do good as a uh, homeschool parent. Be anointed to, be, to do good as a stay-at-home mom. Be anointed to do good as a grandparent. The anointing of God comes upon us to do what is right, to do what is good. We have to be anointed to do the Word of God. Amen. So the anointing came upon Jesus first and foremost to do good, who went about uh, doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Now, we, want, we don't want to limit the doing good to just healing because Jesus did a lot more than that. But we also see an extension of that anointing because that harkens back to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to preach the gospel, to heal the brokenhearted, to deliver sight to the blind. We're anointed to do good, which means no matter what your hand finds to do, you can invoke the power of God to do it. Lord, anoint me to do this. Lord, this is the job you've given me. Anoint me 
to dig a ditch. Anoint me to finish the project. Lord, I need the wisdom of Christ. There is a spirit of wisdom to be had. I need the wisdom of Christ. I need the wisdom of God to troubleshoot this project. I need the wisdom of God to fix this car. Lord, I need the wisdom of God to get through this algebra class or this physics class. We ought to be calling upon the Holy Spirit and the anointing of God way more than we do. And if we did, our lives would thrive more. In our charismatic Pentecostal circles, we wanted to use the anointing to look mystical. And that was so farcical and superficial. We should have been using the anointing of God to excel in our private lives. The anointing for marriage, the anointing for parenting, the anointing for a budget, the anointing for my career, the anointing to be a soul winner. What we wanted to do was talk about Sunday morning before Sunday school, the three dreams I had Thursday. Oh, and I laid hands on this man at the store. He manifested 26 devils, and the 27th one wrestled with me in the meat section. He called his name Hohoba from Tyre of Zidon. You're just making up stuff. We, if we had truly had the anointing, our kids would be better. If we had truly had the anointing, our marriage would be better. If we had invoked the anointing, our careers could be better. You ought to invoke the anointing of God when you fall out of favor with your boss because the anointing will correct you. The anointing will instruct you. The anointing will guide you. It's not only for healing the sick and casting out devils and going to heaven either now or before you die or when you die. It's for doing good in the earth. Moms ought to pray, Lord, give me the anointing of God. I need the Holy Spirit to raise these babies. And fathers say, Lord, I need wisdom to father these children and to guide my wife. We ought to be invoking the anointing of God, not for mystical TV and shows that nobody's impressed with or cares about, but to be successful in reflecting the gospel in our life. We're anointed to live this. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 10. Let's read a long passage here. I'm already over a few minutes longer than I wanted to. Let's see how quickly I can wrap this up. 1 Samuel chapter 10. I want to show you several things. We understand, I think, by default, the anointing manifests the gifts of the Spirit. You can tell the anointing of God will come upon you when you say, all right, that's the spirit of prophecy right there. Or there there's the tongues. I've got to give the interpretation on that. Or the, the spirit of the Lord comes upon you, and all of a sudden, you know, that's a word of wisdom or that's a word of knowledge. You begin to see things by the spirit of God. That's an anointing. We might also throw out there, worth studying later, there are some anointings that are sovereign. You cannot control them. And there are other anointings you must develop. Sovereign anointings are typically for the gifts of the spirit. And anointings that you develop are, say, the preaching anointing or the worship anointing, anointing for your career, anointing that is your grace in life. You develop those and you grow in them. We don't stay stagnant and expect God to keep us anointed. First Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. Let me read this quickly. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon Saul's head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be ruler or captain over his people, his inheritance? When, so right there we see the anointing of Saul to be king. You're going to be the king. Verse 2, Saul, Samuel speaking to the newly anointed Saul. When thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find two men by Rachel's sepulcher in the border of Benjamin at Zelzah. 
And they will say unto thee, The asses which thou wentest to seek are found, and lo, thy father hath left the care of the asses and sorroweth for you, saying, What shall I do for my son? Then shalt thou go forward from thence, and thou shalt come to the plain of Tabor, and there shall meet thee three men going up to God, to Bethel, one carrying three kids. That means goats, not children. You know it's not children because men don't ever carry their kids. <laughs> and another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a bottle of wine. And they will salute thee and give thee two loaves of bread, which thou shalt receive with their hands. After that, thou shalt come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines. And it shall come to pass, when thou art come there, thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a tabret and a pipe and a harp before them, and they shall prophesy. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another man. Now, this is an interesting passage. Number one, that's an incredibly long word of knowledge, word of wisdom. This is going to happen, and you're going to meet these guys, and they're going to have this, and they're going to give you this. That's really accurate. But he was just anointed to be king. He's about to run into some prophets. And listen to me very carefully. He's anointed to be king. That's his calling. He's about to go hang out with some prophets, and what's on them is going to rub off on him for a moment. And he will take upon him that same spirit, and for a moment of time, he will prophesy and be changed into another man. Now, we could teach that two different ways. We could teach justifiably the Spirit of God will turn you into another person, and it be sound and wonderful. But in context, you are Saul. You are king. But this is going to make you look like a prophet. But you're not a prophet. You're Saul a king. But just be prepared. I've anointed you to be king. You're going to run with some prophets. God's going to come upon you because God's among them, and you're going to think you're a prophet, but you're not a prophet. This concept has ruined many people. Saul never prophesied like this again. He would never try to be prophet again. Nobody was duped into ever thinking he was anything more than a king. In this moment, it happens. They say, is Saul among the prophets now? It was so tangible. Everybody began to declare he must be called to be a prophet. He must be called to be a prophet. And I can't help in looking at this context. In this church in the 90s, with so much anointing and revival, if it didn't rub off on people and deceive them into thinking they were called to be something they were not called to be. You shall be turned into another man, and let it be when these signs are coming to thee, that thou do as occasion serve thee, for God is with thee. And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee, and thou shalt uh, show thee what thou shalt do. Let's see. Verse 11. Actually, verse 10. And when they came thither to the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them, only among them, only when he was with them did he prophesy among them. And it came to pass when all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, What is this that is coming to the son of Kish? Is son also among the prophets? And one of the same place answered, said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he made an end of prophesying, he came to the high place. 
He never did that again. But everybody began to try to prophesy he was called to the ministry. So let's use that as a word of warning. Just because you run with preachers and it rubs off on you doesn't mean you are one. When I was among the assemblies of God for, I've been among the assemblies of God a couple times, Key West, and, and then mostly for about eight or nine months in Indianapolis, uh, where I met Miss Manda and Steve-O and Gertie, the assemblies of God have a tremendous legacy of the gifts of the Spirit. They are one of the denominations that came out of the Zeusa revival. Uh, most of the good AG churches have maintained that well, that is the anointing of the gifts of the Spirit. And in that nine months I was there, I, even to this day as a pastor, I have never operated in the gifts of the Spirit as easily and as readily as I did in the nine months I was there because it was there. And I wasn't even in leadership. I wasn't in charge. I was used in some Bible studies. Anytime I was asked to pray, it was there. Anytime I was in a service, I could tell you what God was going to do because that's the legacy of the AGs. It was tangible. I mentioned it to Pastor Darren. I said, have you ever encountered this? He said, now that you're saying that, when I served the AG church in Canada for a year, it's exactly what happened to me. It hasn't been like that since. Well, that's their anointing. It's available for everybody, but that denomination pioneered it. So my point is, we have to be mindful of the anointings and recognize what is ours and what is not, what has been given to us, what is delegated for a season. When I've traveled with Dr. Barclay and I come away from him, there's things that are on me for a season, then they fade away. And you, I want to come back and hurry up and get it into the church because I know it's not going to last long because it's going to deteriorate, to lift, to wane, maybe a better word. We all have a baseline anointing, if I can say that. It's called your personal walk with God. And then whatever he's called you to do, he's obligated to increase that so that you develop it and you grow it and you, and you strengthen it. And now it becomes something you have for the body of Christ. It's your natural grace. It's your natural calling and gifting. Those that have come up under me, they've, they've been able to walk away with a great teaching anointing because that's what I have. But I think I got it from Pastor Vaughn. Even with Pastor Brett, while he was here, he was the evangelist. He goes to Africa. He's known as the teacher. But that's because it comes through this church. He's a partaker of this church's anointing. So my point with all that is because we could teach for weeks and months on the anointing and never exhaust it. There's different flavors, different purposes. There's a personal anointing that you have for your life. Some of you have abilities that I don't have, and that's what we use you in. You can be a partaker of my grace and anointing. I can become a partaker of your grace and anointing, and we strengthen one another. But we also need to be careful this last warning here. Don't be deceived by participating in somebody else's anointing as though you're it. I remember when we were being trained up under Pastor Darren, they were kind of three of us younger guys, and Pastor Darren said, I'm going to let you do announcements, but don't go longer than 10 minutes because the preach anointing is already up there, and you'll step into it, and you'll take a liberty I've not given you. And I watch guys do it. Even though Pastor Darren said, that's my anointing up there, it's, there's a message I need to deliver. Your job is to do announcements, your job is to receive the offering. You're up and down in 10 minutes. And I watched one dingling take 30, 40 minutes. And I was like, hmm, you're getting nailed when we're done here tonight. And then you look over there and you see Pastor Darren just shaking his head. But he stepped into the anointing that was not his. He was warned. He got thumped. That's why we have to be taught these things. I, I could tell you story after story on these kind of situations. Uh, there was another story. Uh, one of my pastor friends was telling me he knew... Uh, at the beginning of service, I need to lay hands on the sick tonight. God wants to do a work among the sick tonight. 
The worship team, he'd already selected the songs for the worship team because you don't really let the worship team do what they want because that can be dangerous sometimes. His worship leader picked up on the same anointing and stole the service from him and sang songs about healing for an hour and a half. And there was nothing left to do and killed the service. She picked up on the right thing, but she didn't submit. The anointing was there. She could tell. She probably did it with the right heart. God wants to heal people. I'll just sing songs that haven't been approved. We want the liberty. Don't get me wrong. But when the pastor knows what he's doing and he's looked at the song list and says, this is going to help me tonight. Just trust me. Stay ready. And then she gets up there and says, oh, we need to sing healing songs. And she's not the one anointed to navigate the service and people end up losing out on their healing or their miracle. We have to be way more adept. One of the things that frustrated my wife when we were first married because she was new to all this and we were taking over the church. She says, does everything have to be so spiritual? And with one answer, yes. It's the spirit realm. On the other hand, no, we don't have to live in the spirit realm. There's a natural to be enjoyed. But if we're in the spirit realm, then baby, you better be spiritual. Now, once we leave here, go drink a Coca-Cola, go watch some football before the game's over tonight. But there is a nuance and a science to the spirit realm that we have to understand and cooperate in. Now, I won't turn there. If you want to look at it, write it down, 1 Samuel 19. A couple times later, a couple chapters later, Saul sends people to go get David. He keeps sending messengers, and they fall among Samuel, and they start prophesying. And Saul's like, wait, wait, my mercenaries are prophesying? Yeah, they got around Samuel. Send some more. Sends another batch of messengers. They fall among Samuel, start prophesying. Three rounds of messengers that are there with belligerent motives get under the anointing. They turn into prophets as long as they're around Samuel. These men were never called. These men have no heart to be called. They got around the anointing and they began to prophesy like Samuel. Kind of ruins your attack. My point is we need to really be careful in what we think we're called under the anointing and recognize what's our lane and be content with where God's called you. Amen?